Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. I was asked to provide comrades with my notes for the lead-off to help the translators, but uh, I'm too old for that. I have these kind of notes. As you can see, fully, fully digitalized. And um, furthermore, far too much for 90 minutes. So I think I might do what Ted Grant used to do, which was to read the first page of his notes and then not look at them for the rest of the talk. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, now, Ted Grant has a major role, obviously, in this history, because the history of the INT is uh, firmly connected with the ideas and methods that Ted kept alive. Of course, we are Trotskyists and we uh, go back to the left opposition of the 1930s. Those uh, communist fighters who fought against the bureaucratic degeneration of the Soviet Union. And we build on their tradition. It was a difficult period uh, in which to defend the genuine ideas of Marxism. And it's an unfortunate fact that many uh, Many elements on the left who claim uh, the mantle of Trotsky, the mantle of Lenin, in reality have a sectarian approach and they do a disservice to the movement. Now, you see, I remember with Ted, it was what distinguished him, I think, was the ability to dialogue with ordinary working class people while at the same time not losing the revolutionary perspective. It, it, it's an ability to work in the wider labor movement with a language that workers can understand at the same time without losing the revolutionary program analysis and perspective. One of the dangers facing the revolutionary movement is adaptation to the reformist milieu. You see, in periods of relative stability, in periods of economic upswing, um, most of all workers want to get on with their lives, and they're not ready to listen to the revolutionaries. What will push the masses to revolutionary ideas are not the Marxists, but it's the crisis of the capitalist system as it unfolds. So revolutionaries can work for long periods, seemingly against the stream, and there can be a temptation to adapt to a given level of consciousness at a given moment. And this can push the revolutionaries towards reformist adaptation. At the same time, it can also lead to the development of a sectarian approach, because this comes from frustration and impatience with the working class. And very often we see both the opportunist tendencies and the ultra-left tendencies in the same people or in the same organizations. Now, what distinguished, I think, Ted was this ability to maintain a balanced position. And this, I think, is what characterized the organizations that TED helped to build. First of all, the Workers' International League in 1938, 
the RCP, the Revolutionary Communist Party, later on during the Second World War, the militant before it degenerated, and subsequently the IMT. Now, this, uh, what I referred to earlier on, this, this adaptation to opportunism and this tendency towards sectarianism are things that the Marxists are in a constant battle against. It was present in 1938, in 1945, in the 60s, in the 70s. As the militant uh, towards the, the end uh, degenerated, its leadership went into an ultra-left direction, but there were also elements that went in an opportunist direction and buried themselves in, in the Labour Party and the trade unions in, in, in a bureaucratic manner. And we ourselves have had to constantly be alert to these tendencies. And on occasion, we've had to separate from individuals or groups who had gone too far in either ultra-leftism or opportunism. Now, sometimes I get asked the question, what guarantees do we have that this, all this won't happen again? I'll say it again, and I'm not, it's not my invention. I'm only quoting somebody else. If you want a guarantee, buy a washing machine because they come with a guarantee. But even they have a guarantee which has a limit. Now, the only thing that comes anywhere close to a guarantee is political education, attention to theory, and the building of Marxist cadres, i.e. active members of the organization who have a good grounding in Marxist theory and who can think for themselves. Another thing which we mustn't forget, and Ted always used to insist on this, is that revolutionaries must have a sense of proportion, and we must maintain that. We mustn't get carried away. Once you think you're much stronger and much more powerful and much more important than you really are, you're on the road to ruin. Another thing which revolutionaries need is a sense of humor, which is connected to a sense of proportion. I think I have a sense of humor, so at least I have one of the elements. Um, now, to move on, um, why are we discussing the history of the IMT? Well, it's because capitalism is a global system. The working class struggle is a global struggle. And socialism can only succeed as a global system. The Russian Revolution, the marvelous uh, revolutionary events of October 1917, unfortunately, were not, uh, was not followed by revolutions, or successful revolutions in other countries. And therefore, it degenerated into the monstrous Stalinist regime that we saw. And that was because of its isolation to one country and a very backward one at that. Now, Stalinists always talk of socialism in one country. They talk about national roads to socialism. I remember in the 70s in Britain, the British road to socialism. Or in Italy, it was the Italian road to socialism. The question has to be asked, therefore, why did Lenin give so much importance to the building of the communist international? 15 minutes gone. Why bother if it's possible to build socialism in one country? The reason Lenin gave such importance is because Lenin understood that either the revolution spread to other countries or um, it faced the risk of being overthrown or degenerating. Capitalism is an international system and never like today has it become evident 
that the problems facing humanity can only be solved on a global scale. The pandemic, climate change, they do not recognize national borders. Neither does the economic crisis. We have immense productive forces that have been created. We have the development of science and technique to unprecedented levels. Recently, very recently, both India and the United Arab Emirates sent uh, probes on their way to Mars. And yet millions, billions of people face poverty and hunger. For that, we need, uh, what we need is to remove the system. The working class is the class that will do that. But the whole of history shows the working class also needs leadership up to the task. In each country, we must build initially the nucleus of a Marxist organization and then work to transform that later on on the basis of events into a major force. That is what the IMT stands for. Now, the question is, where do we come from? What is our history? The time I have, I can't go into the details of every event, every moment, but I will attempt to touch on the main points. Hubert mentioned two books. Those books I recommend to everybody. They should read them if they haven't read them, if they want a more detailed account of what I'm going to talk about. And as Hubert said, we stand on the tradition of the first, second, third international, the first four Congress of the Communist International, the left opposition of Trotsky. 20 minutes gone. And the founding Congress of the fourth international in 1938. Now, Ted Grant plays an important role in this. In 1928, he joined the Trotskyist movement. When he was a 15-year-old boy, he bought the paper of the American Trotskyists in a bookshop in South Africa. That's how he, got, he, he, he began to get involved. Um, he subsequently moved to Britain in 1934 with a few other comrades from South Africa. And I'm fast-forwarding. I can't go into the details. In 1938, together with uh, Ralph Lee, He and a few other and a small group of comrades set up what became known as the Workers' International League. I want to give a bit of a, a taste of the environment that Ted found when he came to Britain. Um, there were small Trotskyist groups in Britain in the 1930s. And it's honest to, it would be honest to say that they suffered from the disease of sectarianism. For instance, Trotsky's advice initially was that they should set up a tendency within the Independent Labour Party. Uh, they divided over that. Some agreed, some didn't. When it was clear that, that the period, the, the, the fruitful period of work in the ILP was coming to an end, and Trotsky advised them to move their forces to the Labour Party, again, there were divisions within the small group of Trotsky. Because as usual, you have sectarians who first they refuse to go in, When they do go in, they adapt in an, an opportunist manner and, get, and, and don't, um, don't accept the advice of Trotsky. And again, they, the, some of them did accept Trotsky's advice and went into the Labour Party. But from my reading of, those, of that period, it's not enough to judge whether a group is working correctly simply by seeing whether they are in or outside the Labour Party. Because you can adapt in an opportunist manner Uh, when you're working in the reformist milieu. So what we had when Ted arrived was different. Uh, by 1938, you had several small Trotskyist groups with different positions. Some were outside the Labour Party, some were inside. 
I would say they all suffer from the small circle mentality, which we've had a separate discussion on here at this school. Ted's group started off as basically an, an expulsion, actually, from one of these groups um, in Paddington in London. And they decided to launch the Workers International League as a consequence, which was which was orientated. It was working in the Labour Party. But there was another group also working in the Labour Party, Trotsky's group. But I would argue there was a difference between the two groups. Ted's group was openly defending the ideas of Marxism. No hint of opportunism in the way they presented their ideas. But it wasn't just that. It was also an outgoing group. They were selling papers in London on you know, the metro stations. They were going to the factories and selling papers. They were genuinely going out into the working class to build. And they were building, whereas the others were stagnating. Now, what happened in 1938 is the following. Preparations, preparations were being made to organize the founding Congress of the Fourth International. James Cannon, a leader of the American section of the Fourth International, came to Britain. His aim was to fuse all the Trotskyist groups into one organization and then go to the Congress in France, which was to found the, the, the Fourth International with a successful fusion behind his, you know, in his pocket. Little problem. There was no principled unity on how to work amongst these groups. The policy of the Fourth International for Britain was actually being carried out by the will. They were carrying out the advice of Trotsky. Curiously enough, the will did not become the official section of the Fourth International in 1938. 30 minutes gone. Why is that? Well, when Cannon met with the will, and, and curiously, the only group that Cannon not only spoke to the leaders, but spoke to the whole membership in a meeting, was the will. The will comrades accepted that they would participate in the conference, which, were, which was aimed at fusing the groups together. But they explained the conditions for a fusion do not exist. And if you look at the final result of the fusion congress, you see why. They formed an organization which had, which had some of its members doing independent work, some of them doing Labour Party work. They had not agreed on how to work. They simply formally accepted to declare themselves members of the same organization. Ted's group and Ralph Lee of the Will refused to participate in what they saw as a farce. Cannon never forgave the Will comrades for that. How could they not carry out the dictates of Cannon? That shows you the method of Cannon. Instead of basing himself on the politics, on a common policy, it was just force the groups together. It just You cannot do that. It will not work. Um, he went so far that he even hid from the delegates present at the founding Congress of the Fourth International that the will had applied first to be recognized as the official section because they were carrying out the policy of the international. He hid that from the men, from the delegates. They said, failing that, if the conference did not recognize that, they requested to be recognized as a sympathizing group. As you can see in the figure of Canon, there was a disease present right from the very early days of the formation of the Fourth International. Unfortunately, there is in the writings of Leon Trotsky, uh, the volume 1938-39, a text which is a, a basically it's a, a, an interview, a dialogue between C.L.R. James and Trotsky. And it's interesting what C.L.R. James tells Trotsky. 
he's describing to Trotsky the various groups that exist in Britain. And this is what he says. There is also another group, Lee's group in the Labour Party. Lee was then the, the, the leading figure in, in the will. And he says, which refused to have anything to do with fusion, which is a lie, by the way, because, because they said they were prepared to go through the process of discussion. But then he quotes correctly saying, um, he said, saying that they quoting Lee, the Lee group, saying it, that they said it was bound to fail. Little detail, the next sentence, the Lee group, the Lee group is very active. Now, it's interesting in the same dialogue with C.L.R. James, what Trotsky has to say about the Trotskyists in Britain. This is Trotsky's judgment of those that entered the ILP. He says, not all our comrades entered the ILP. And those that did, and they developed an opportunistic policy so far as I could observe. And that is why their experience in the ILP was not so good. But then if you go to a note to this, um, to this text in the writings of Trotsky, and of course the note is, is uh, produced by Pathfinder, which was controlled by the American SWP under Cannon. This is their explanation. The Lee Group came into existence in 1938 as a result of purely personal grievances and had no discernible political program. That's the way they present that event. The truth is, the will was actually the healthiest of all these groups. So far did the publishers of Pathfinder Press go in this question that they hid one letter from Trotsky to Ted's group. I won't go into the details because there is a long explanation by Alan Woods on this question. But it was a letter that Trotsky wrote after the will had published uh, Trotsky's uh, Lessons of Spain. In another interview, uh, Trotsky praises, uh, and it can only be the will that he's referring to, he praises them for having acquired a small printing press, because they were the only group that did that. Ultimately, it's gone. Read Alan's text to, 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 to find the details of how we discovered this letter and how we finally got it recently, which was a, a big, a very important um, uh, development for us because it showed that what Ted had said all those years was true. The letter did exist and it was finally produced. Now, within a few weeks, the, the new group that they formed split apart as the will had predicted. And then precisely because the will was the healthiest of these groups. If we look at what happened during the Second World War, the will begins to grow significantly. I have lots of uh, detailed information here, which I can't quote because of time. The, the, the significant workers that they won over, trade union leaders, uh, shop stewards, um, factory leaders, they won them um, to the will. In 1941, they changed their orientation the Labour Party was empty at that stage. It was in a national coalition. The war was on. But the, com- the, 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 the Communists of the Will actively intervened in all the major strikes. Um, and you have to understand, the Labour Party was in a coalition with the Conservatives and the Liberals. The official Communist Party, the Stalinist Communist Party, their position was to support the war effort and uh, they, they were against uh, strike action. Um, and the um, uh, the situation was one where the the will was making very important gains, especially on the industrial front amongst the the workers. The Stalinists, because of this growing influence of the RCP, 
because the RCP was then formed in 1940. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. I'll explain that. In, in 19, by 1944, the will was by far the strongest of all the Trotskyist groups. And the Fourth International had to recognize that. And um, that's how there was a fusion with the best of the others, you could say. Um, and it, that was the basis for the creation of the, of the new organization, basically under the leadership of the will, which was became known as the Revolutionary Communist Party. Now, there is a, 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 an interesting little document that you can actually find on the Marxist, Marxist Internet Archive. It's called Clear Out Hitler's Agents. It's a, it was a pamphlet, a leaflet produced by the official Communist Party attacking the RCP and the will as agents of Hitler because they supported strikes. The reply of the will in, in 1942 to this slander, which you can also find on the Marxist Internet Archive, is called Factory Workers, Be on Your Guard, Clear Out the Bosses Agents. And as I said, Ted Grant always had a sense of humor. They published a leaflet. They, they published a leaflet in which they offered a ten-pound reward to any worker who could find one page in this Stalinist pamphlet with, which had less than three lies in it. The workers had a good laugh, but nobody claimed the ten pounds. Now, um, towards the end of the war, the comrades were they were involved in the apprentices' strikes in the northeast of England. They had a strong base. They even had soldiers uh, in the Eighth Army spreading the ideas of Trotskyism to the, to the soldiers, to the British soldiers. As part of the RCP involvement in the strikes, several of leading figures of the RCP were arrested, kept in prison, um, um, and put on, uh, put on trial. But in the army, in, 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 in Egypt, the, the British army, you had what was called the Cairo Soldiers Parliament. It was a kind of, I suppose, an organization of debate amongst the soldiers where they discussed and they even published bulletins among the soldiers. 15 minutes gone. And among the soldiers, the slogan was raised, we are fighting, that is the war, as they saw it, an anti-fascist war as they saw it, we're fighting for the right to strike. That had an effect, and in the end, they had to let them out on bail, and eventually, um, they had to drop the case. Now, the perspectives of the Fourth International and the perspectives of Trotsky before he died were that the Second World that the Second World War would end with a wave of revolution like the First World War. In a certain sense, that was true: the Greek Civil War, the Partisan Movement in Italy, the Partisans in France, the Colonial Revolution. It was given a massive impetus, India, China. But it's true to say that things did not work out as they had predicted, particularly in the advanced capitalist countries. The, uh, the strengthening of the Soviet Union under Stalin, the spread of deformed worker states from the Soviet Union to Eastern Europe, enormously strengthened the authority of Stalinism in that particular period. And the, the, the defeat of the movement in several countries created the conditions for economic revival in the capitalist uh, countries, in the advanced capitalist countries. The perspectives that the Trotskyists had worked out had to be reappraised. And in spite of the successful work done during the war, the changed conditions immediately after the war had an impact on the RCP. The leadership of the RCP around TED 
uh, attempted to reappraise, to, to draw a balance sheet of the situation. Ted, in 1946, in a document called Economic Perspectives, uh, which was a, a, an amend- a proposed line of amendment to the International Conference of the Fourth International, he criticized those who were talking about the spontaneous collapse of capitalism. He said this, to quote, he said, with the weakness of the parties of the Fourth International, which remain small sects at this stage, the capitalists have been enabled to find a way out of the collapse and decline of economy. This has prepared the way in Western Europe for a steady and fairly rapid recovery. And he added, the Fourth International will only discredit itself if it refuses to recognize the inevitable recovery. And it will disorientate its own cadres, as well as the broad masses, by predicting a permanent slump and slow rhythm of recovery in Western Europe, when events are taking a different shape. Um, Of course, Ted had a balanced position. After explaining that a recovery was taking place, he explained, however, a new recovery, this is what he says, a new recovery can only prepare the way for an even greater slump and even an economic crisis than in the past. Compare what the leaders of the RCP were saying with what the leaders of the Fourth International were saying. And you tell me who had the more balanced position and who, whose ideas have been confirmed by history. Now, uh, um, Ted did not have a crystal ball. He couldn't see the, 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 how, how long and how big the boom was going to be. But he had eyes to see, and he could see what was in front of his eyes, that there was an economic recovery taking place in that particular moment. And it was necessary to reorientate the forces of the Fourth International. But the leaders of the Fourth International refused to listen, not just on the question of economic perspective. Their perspective, their perspective was that the Soviet Union was about to collapse. Read what Ted and the, and the leaders of the RCP were saying. They were explaining that the opposite was the case. Read what they were saying about China. Ted, even before Mao came to power, because there, there was speculation among some Trotskyists that Mao would not come to power, he would betray. I can't go into the details here. You read the texts. You read, for instance, Reply to David James, which is available on the Marxist Internet Archive. Ted explained that Mao would come to power with an independent base. And therefore, and, it, and what would come to power would be a bureaucratic caste similar to the Soviet Union. Now, make this be clear. We welcomed the Chinese Revolution as the second most important event in history after the Russian Revolution itself, but that it would have a bureaucratic deformation from the day one. 60 minutes. And on this basis, Ted predicted that the Chinese bureaucracy would come into conflict with the Soviet bureaucracy. History proved Ted to be correct within about 10 or 15 years. But what is most incredible about the leaders, of, the so-called leaders of the Fourth International at the time was their refusal to recognize that the Second World War had even ended. I will read Cannon from November 1945. This is what Cannon said. Trotsky predicted that the fate of the Soviet Union would be decided in the war. That remains our firm conviction. Only, and listen to this, only make sure your ears are nice and clean and you can hear this because you might not believe it. This is Cannon. Only... We disagree with some people who carelessly think the war is over. 
The war has only passed through one stage and is now in the process of regroupment and reorganization for the second. The war is not over and the revolution which we said would issue from the war in Europe is not taken off the agenda. I will stop the quote there because I, th- I think it's enough. Can you imagine going to the working class at the end of the Second World War and you tell them the war is not over, there is no economic recovery and revolution is around the corner, basically. They had completely lost their bearings. When it became obvious that the war was over, then they began to predict the Third World War. I will quote Pierre Frank from December 1951, Second World War. This was at the Third Congress of the Fourth International. It says, the Third World Congress of the Trotskys has clearly drawn the positions of our movement in the coming war. This is, this is Pierre Frank. This is all available if you, if you look it up. Um, with this total lack of understanding of the real world they were in, they destroyed the Fourth International. In Britain, they maneuvered. They found people to support their position. An individual called Jerry Healy, who was ready to support them, then spent the next several decades predicting the Third World War. And they expelled Ted Grant in a situation where the RCP was basically in a state of collapse. Can you imagine? The objective conditions were difficult. And then all these maneuvers from the top had a demoralizing effect on the ranks of the RCP. In spite of all this, in 1950, Ted wrote an open letter to what had then become the official section of the Fourth International. The group with Ted was now outside of that organization. And he's appealing them to reappraise. This is what he said, a- analyzing the, the situation. He says this, this poses new theoretical problems to be worked out by the Marxist movement. Under conditions of isolation and paucity of forces, that's of, of small forces, um, new historic, historical factors could not but result in a theoretical crisis of the movement, posing the problem of its very existence and survival. Now, how many times have we quoted Lenin, who said that there's no such thing as the final crisis of capitalism? I have here the bulletin on the Third World Congress of the Fourth International of 1951. 70 minutes. Uh, Obviously, it's a mirror image, as you can see. But what it's... What it says is the final crisis of world capitalism. Now, all the subsequent groups that emerged from the splits and subsplits and splinters and fragmentations of the Trotskyist movement all have, unfortunately, a certain amount of, D- of this DNA. Remember, 1938, Ted was kept out of the fourth by Cannon. In 1950, they expelled Ted and his group. In the 50s, I can't go into the details here. Because of the splits in the Fourth International, the Fourth ended up with no section in Britain. Uh, the people that maneuvered against Ted then came into conflict with the Fourth International. And in the mid-50s, the question was posed as whether Ted's group should go back into the Fourth International. They debated that question. I remember speaking to some of the older comrades who told me that, they were, that some of them were not too keen. But it was a very small group, I don't know, 30 to 50 the membership in the 1950s, isolated in Britain in very difficult conditions. They ended, They decided we'll go back in. They didn't agree with the policy and the perspectives of these people, but they were hoping that to break out of their isolation, they were hoping there would be some healthy elements somewhere in the fourth. What's interesting here is this. 
1945-48, Ted was fighting the ultra-left perspectives of the leaders of the Fourth International. But by the time we get to the end of the 50s, he's fighting, he's fighting, their, opportun- he's fighting their opportunism. They had become, because the, the Third World War hadn't taken place, the economy hadn't collapsed, the Soviet Union had not collapsed, reality banged them so hard on the head that they swung 180 degrees the other way. And they started to see deficit financing and all kinds of ideas that explained that capitalism was facing a long-term uh, boom and uh, crisis were off the agenda. They even played with the ideas of, of bourgeoisification of the, of the working class, some of them, some of them. One of the reasons why Ted wrote, Will There Be a Slump? in 1960, was as, in, in polemic against the international leadership and against the reformists, of course, who thought that capitalism has now solved all its problems. In 1958-60, more or less, there was a, a, an opposition group developed in, the, in, 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 the, uh, in Ted's group. They had this idea that we shouldn't have a paper, an independent paper, and that they should form a paper with other lefts. They were, they were adapting opportunistically. What's interesting is what, where these people ended up. They ended up as becoming the future Mandalites, utterly opportunist. Within 10 years, they were utterly sectarian and ultra-left. As you can see, Ted, throughout the whole of his history, was fighting both opportunism and ultra-leftism in the movement. And remember, there were other Trotskyist groups working in the Labour Party at that time. But the question is not, it's not whether you're in or out, it's how you work. In the early 60s, Ted's group was coming to the conclusion that we need a clear banner. That's what led to the uh, launching of the militant paper in 1964. But they also had to come to terms with the, uh, de- with, with, the fourth, with the so-called Fourth International. In this pamphlet, we have a document which was presented to the Congress of the so-called Fourth International, 1965. The International refused to circulate the document. Ted Grant said... The second international had become a post office. He said, you guys are not good even at being post, um, uh, postal delivery workers. They basically expelled Ted for the third time. This is an example of the early militant. This is from, eight, from June 1968. In 1970, Ted wrote a document called Program of the International. 80 minutes. Which I advise all comrades who haven't read it to read. To read it, it's available online because it draws a balance sheet of all these years I've been talking about. And it refers to the future international. In fact, there's a subtitle, How Will the International Be Organized? Remember, this was a small group isolated in one country, but they had something the others didn't have, ideas and the Marxist method and a balanced approach. They worked, but by 1970, the militant as a tendency gained a majority in the youth of the Labour Party and then began to break out of the national isolation, making contacts with the left young socialists in Sweden, in Ireland, in Belgium, in Germany. I remember in in 1974, which was a key moment for capitalism as well, the first real, you could say, world recession since the Second World War. I remember the events of the 1970s, starting with May 68, the hot autumn in Italy in 1969, the anti-war movement internationally against the Vietnam War, the events in South America with revolution and counter-revolution in countries like Chile and Argentina, 
the growing revolutionary movement of the Spanish workers after decades of uh, Franco dictatorship, the collapse of the junta in Greece, the Portuguese revolution, the, the defeat of Portuguese imperialism in Angola and Mozambique. There was a worldwide movement of the workers and the youth. And those are the conditions in which finally we established a new international, which gave itself the name then of the Committee for a Workers International. I remember at the time we were gathering our forces. We gave key importance to the events of Spain. We concentrated all our energy on finding contact with the youth and the workers in the underground in Spain. That's when we decided to send Alan Woods to Spain under the Franco dictatorship. And, we, and we, starting with a small nucleus, we built up quite a, a powerful tendency very quickly in a very short amount of time. We made contact with um, left groups in Greece just after the collapse of the junta, and we won over a, gr uh, a group in Greece. I can't go into the details, but it was, the international was growing. We began the work in Italy. We began the work in North America, in South America. We won a group of South Africans. This is the first issue of their paper, and this, and this is a, a, one of their perspective documents which they were ex for which they were expelled from the ANC. Um, we were growing, becoming a strong force, particularly in Britain, where we were becoming a household name. Now, I know that Rob is going to go into more details on this part of our history. Three minutes left. So I'm not going to go into too many details, but we started getting councillors, MPs. Our MPs were different from all the others. They took the wage of a worker and they gave the rest back to different causes of the labor movement. So popular were our MPs. I have a, a, a very a, a personal little anecdote. I grew up in Coventry in the, in the Midlands in England. My mother was working in a restaurant which was going to close and they were going to sack the workers. Not, my mother, not particularly political, but she said once, If, if, you know, the, if the MP, if that MP, uh, Nellist, if he was the manager, he wouldn't treat us like this, would he? My cousin's husband, another not very political, he said, talking about David Nellist, he's the, he's the working man's MP. We had a strong base in Liverpool. We intervened massively in the miners' strike. And we led, and, and we led the poll tax movement of millions of people. Right. Now, unfortunately... That organization degenerated. And I won't go into the details. Rob can explain more. But in 1991, we, we began to separate our ways. The myth is that we separated over the Labour Party. That's only very, very partially true. The reality was the whole setup, the whole, the, the whole regime within the militant had degenerated. We were forced to break with this. And we launched in 1992 what is now known as the international Marxist tendency. And it wasn't easy, and we, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a clear run. Uh, we went through a lot of clarification, and we, even, and we had to separate further with elements, which I believe had, some had gone in an ultra-left direction, others had adapted to the reformist milieu. The IMT is not prepared to make concessions on questions of principle. Marxist theory is the key. We regrouped and we began to rebuild. And in the last 20 or so years, from nothing, we have built strong organizations in Canada and the United States. We encountered the comrades in Brazil, the leaders of the Occupy Factories movement at the height of the Venezuelan revolution and discovered we had a lot in common and we united. 
And we built in several other countries, in Nigeria, South Africa, Indonesia, Pakistan, most recently in Russia. Um, we have built what we believe is the nucleus of a future powerful Marxist international based on the traditions of the first, second, third, and fourth international, on the ideas developed by Ted Grant, on the ideas that we further developed since then. Now, a lot more, I don't want to encroach on the other talk you're going to get tomorrow, which is on building the organization. I will leave that to another comrade. But I've tried to outline the basic points of our history. And as you see, it's not an organizational question. At every turn, it's been a political question, understanding the processes, understanding the post-war period, understanding the perspectives for the Stalinist country, understanding the colonial revolution, and maintaining a firm and clear perspective that it's the working class which will change society. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.